things as well. And there are going to be 20 lectures, some of which will have nothing to do with this. Uh, for instance, this afternoon, Keith, Keith uh, will, this, will present a paper on the gold basis, which, as you probably all know, the gold basis is a very important indicator, far more important than the gold price. And the world is just waking up to its importance. I was the one who took the initiative some six years ago to call the attention of basis and I was completely ignored. Nobody uh, thought that gold basis, well, they didn't even want to, want to look at it. But now you find it all over the place, a lot of misinterpretation and misunderstanding. And we have a team headed by uh, Sandeep Jetley, who is coming, this, he will arrive this afternoon, and he is a young man from India, educated in Britain, and very bright to my mind. I can praise him because he's not here, so <laughs> I, I have very high praise for him as, as a thinker, as an analyst, and a theorist. He invented the co-basis. Don't ask anybody outside our circle what the co-basis is because they won't know. It's not yet in the public domain. Although we put it on the internet, Sandy has a subscription service which is tracking both the basis and co-basis for both gold and silver and makes various recommendations, but the world has not yet started paying attention. So uh, he's coming and uh, you can ask questions, he will be in the position, I hope, to answer them. And uh, Keith has also some ideas, some novel ideas, and this will be the subject this afternoon. However, the first lecture right now is the first chapter in this, these lecture notes, and the title is Ayn Rand's Hymn to Money. Now, I'm not going to read it, you can read it for yourself. It's a very impressive piece of literature in its own right. It was part, originally published as part of, his, of her famous novel, uh, Atlas Shrugged, which was first published in 1958. And it got a tremendous following. Young people just flocked around her and hailed her for uh, her ideas and so on. And it's a 1,600-page novel, so by any standards, it's a long novel. And this hymn 
to money is buried somewhere in the middle. It's by, by the way, the movie has just come out now. There's a three-part series movie just being released in the United States, I think this week, on Atlas Shrugged. A movie? Yes. And when is it coming? I think it's like right this week. Oh. In the United States. Well, now it's a small, that's good news. It's a small independent movie company, so they're not going to all the movie theaters right away. Okay. They're going from city to city to city. It's like an art okay. film. Now that's good to know. By the way, there is another very famous novel of hers. Uh, this is titled The uh, Fountain Head. And there, there was a movie made uh, many years ago of that, which is available, and I thought it was a very good movie. So I, I can recommend both. But coming back to the hymn to money, this is my title. I just took this uh, part of the book and gave it title and then ca put it in captioned form and each caption has a title uh, for easier following and all I'm going to do here is ma read the caption uh, titles. Excuse me. Where is the, the paper about the, the dinners? It is with you. You should, yeah, you should feel it. Everybody put the Dinners that they, no, that you probably have work with, yeah. yeah. because it is necessary for the kitchen. Um, <clears throat> um, the first thing this hymn to money says is that in the public mind, money is the root of all evil and her response to that is that paper money is the root of all evil gold money is the root of all good which is an important distinction which uh, people in general and economists in particular fail to make but this is very important. So the question arises, well, what is uh, the source of the confusion? And perhaps one should go back to the original meaning of the word. The English word money is derived from the Latin and the Latin word is moneta, moneta, which means the warner or forewarner, something or somebody which gives you early warning, advance warning. And this goes back to a lovely story, and I cannot resist the temptation to uh, use it here right now. It's a piece of old Roman history at the very beginning of 
Rome, which eventually grew to a worldwide empire, worldwide in the sense... Everybody feels in his in dinners, I'm sorry, everybody feels this paper. Uh, the, uh, when I say worldwide empire, I mean the world as it was known then, which really was the Mediterranean basis and some of its outskirts, but didn't really cover the world as we know it now. But anyhow, the origin of that huge empire, very powerful, which after all the uh, glorious history collapsed. The origins were very humble. It was just a village. <clears throat> and it was called Rome after Romulus, who had a, a twin brother, Remus, and they started to build the city together and they uh, started fighting uh, obviously for leadership. Who is going to be the Because two cannot be the leader, it has to be one. And they couldn't agree uh, among themselves, but it was clear that Romulus was the uh, stronger character or stronger uh, uh, of the two. And uh, Remus, who uh, wanted to assert his position or authority, started ridiculing the city wall which they built around the original uh, site, which was the nucleus of Rome. And he ridiculed the stone wall, which was supposed to protect uh, the Romans against foreign invasion, by jumping over the stone wall and said, you think this will defend the people inside? And Romulus was so enraged that he actually killed his brother right there on the spot. So he became the undisputed leader and Rome got its name after Romulus. But that's not the story I want to tell you. A little later, when uh, the city got prosperous and so on, there was an invasion, and the invasion came from the Gauls. This was a bar barbarian tribe uh, from Gallia, which was an old name for France. General de Gaulle got his... Uh, name from that uh, uh, part. But anyhow, the Gauls at that time were barbarians, but they started envying the wealth which Rome had, and uh, 
invaded the peninsula from the north, came down and uh, took, put Rome under siege. And uh, the Capitolium was the uh, center of Rome and it was a temple, pagan temple dedicated to the goddess Juno. And Juno was the wife of the chief god uh, Jupiter. There were several gods and goddesses, but they all subjected themselves to the will of Jupiter. And Jupiter had a this jealous wife, Juno, but that's again another story. However, obviously if you worship the gods very close to Jupiter, you have to have a cult for Juno. And so it happened that they built this magnificent uh, building, a temple, the Roman Capitolium, uh, at that time it was probably the finest piece of architecture anywhere uh, in the domain of Rome. We know that in Greece, early, in the earliest centuries, they reached the peak of architecture, which uh, was not really surpassed by the Romans, but by Roman standards it was the finest uh, building and it doubled up the building. It was first, as I mentioned, a temple for the goddess Juno, and number two, it was also the mint, the place where the coins of the realm were struck. So the building served two purposes, and uh, there were gold coins as well as silver coins in addition to the cheaper bronze or copper coins. So here it was, the mint on the top of Capitolium and the city of Rome was surrounded by the enemy, the Gauls. And as it turned out, if you ever go to Rome, it's well worth making the trip to the Capitolium and see why I say it's a very fine piece of architecture. But the hill itself is remarkable because on the back side of it, it's very steep. And the other sides, it's uh, less steep and all the excesses were through this other, these other sides. So the uh, Romans thought that they were safe if they protected the accessible sides where all the roads were and neglect the fortification or even 
the monitoring of the steep side because they thought that the enemy could not negotiate these steep climbs. And they were wrong because that was the plan of the Gauls. They didn't want an open fight. They wanted a, a stealthy attack, uh, take the Romans unawares during the cover of the night and occupy the city in that way. Now, part of the cult of Juno was the uh, sacred uh, sacred geese of Juno. The flock of geese taken care of at the expense of the state, feed them, groom them, pamper them, and so on. And they were kept there, they just lived there nearby the temple. And what happened was that, as indeed the Gauls made the approach through that steep climb and the city was asleep, fast asleep, uh, the geese were alerted and they didn't like the noise from the back, an unusual direction where nobody ever came from. So they started cackling, loud cackling. I think that's the word for uh, the voice of the geese. Honking. Honking. Yeah. Yeah? Honking. Okay. The honking is the, I, well, I don't know. The flying geese, they give a different sound than the, the geese on the ground. But anyhow, uh, the uh, story goes on to say that the loud cackling of the sacred geese of Juno alerted the people. People woke up and said, oh, that's unusual. In the middle of the night, the sacred geese are cackling. This means something. Let's get up and look around. And they found out what was to come. They were attacked in the back, or they were going to be attacked. And they were prepared because of the sacred geese of Juno. And they could uh, beat back the enemy and the siege was broken and the enemy was defeated. The Romans were good fighters and uh, that's why the Gauls wanted to attack them under the cover of the night. And the end of the story is that Rome was victorious and they gave special thanks to the goddess Juno for saving the city and they called the Capitolium uh, uh, or rather they gave the name Moneta to Juno, Moneta, the warner, the 
goddess who gave advance warning through her sacred geese to the city. So then the Capitolium was associated with the name Moneta and this is how Moneta started to mean money because the temple, as I said, doubled up as the mint and this survived in the form of the English word money. And I think this is a nice story and I thought I wanted to share it with you. Uh, um, nowadays don't teach this in schools, but when I was going to school this was one of the readings we had to translate from Latin and we enjoyed it and I remember the uh, very vivid picture as the story tells you about the uh, how Juno interfered and changed the history of the world. Just imagine what would have happened if Rome fell. That was early on in Roman history. So this is how we start. Here is money. And then money has become a lot of things. It has been silver coin, gold coin, copper coin. The Romans made the mistake of diluting their coinage the, uh, during the empire years after the Republic collapsed, which had to do with the uh, assassination of, of Julius Caesar. The uh, empire was formed and it was very strong in the beginning and for uh, centuries after, but then the Romans met their fate just like it seems to me the American Empire is going to meet her fate. The Romans started financing their foreign wars with diluting money. And that's all very well written in the history books. There's just no question. It's not, you don't have to be a gold bug to spread the word. That, because we know exactly when and how much they diluted the gold coinage and the silver coinage and ultimately it become a microscopic uh, uh, part of the coin, gold or silver. But they still scolded the gold dinar and the silver, I forget what the name of the Roman silver coin was, they denarius. kept denarius. Yeah, and they kept the name, you see, that's, that's the cheating part of it. They practically eliminated the gold content, but they kept calling it the old name, as if this was no significant change. And uh, this is how they started financing their wars when the kitty was empty and the, uh, the soldiers had to be paid and so on. And we know what happened. There was a high, what we call today hyperinflation, money lost its value and this 
weakened the economy of the Roman economy, which was very strong before, the strongest in the world before, and as a consequence, the Gauls came back. Actually, at that time, it was not so much the Gauls uh, and other barbarian uh, tribe. What was what tribe was that? Who, who finally, the Visigoths and the Vandals, right? Hey, they prevailed and they sacked Rome. They raped Rome. And uh, that was the end of the Western Roman Empire. We say Western because uh, earlier on the Roman Empire uh, divided itself into two parts, the Western and the Eastern. Uh, the Eastern part had the capital, the old Byzantium, an old city, which out, uh, became Constantinople, and today it's called Istanbul. Uh, but it was great Constantine, a Roman emperor, who is credited with embracing Christianity, abandoning the pagan religion. Uh, before him, of course, Christians were persecuted and even killed cruelly. They were thrown into the arena where they had to face with their bare hands the hungry lions which came and uh, devoured them and the, the Roman count was applauding, uh, enjoying the sight. Uh, but the attitude of great Constantine changed for an interesting uh, reason which has to do with another little story which I tell you in a hurry because that's really just by the way. Uh, uh, Constantine was also a warrior and he faced many enemies and there was a crucial battle where it was not clear that the Romans had the potential of winning and that gave some worries to the emperor, great Constantine. So he was meditating at night, he went out on the, on the star, under the starry skies and he looked up and according to the legend there was a written sign. And the sign said, in hoc signo vinces, which means, in this sign you will win. And what was the sign? It was the sign of the cross. And uh, he didn't need an interpretation for this uh, vision or apparition because it spoke for itself. So he interpreted correctly himself that he would have to embrace Christianity, stop persecuting the Christians, and if he does that, then he will win the battle. And that's exactly what happened. 
and uh, uh, this extended the life. I mean, Rome was doomed probably by that time, but it gave us uh, an ex uh, uh, stay of execution, if you will, and. Uh, uh, Rome had a chance and a late blooming. However, uh, Great Constantine, in his wisdom, decided that this empire was already too big, too big to handle from one center, and he established Constantinople, and it became a great city uh, until the Turkish. Uh, thousand years later uh, occupied it and it was never reclaimed by uh, uh, Christianity it became Muslim and it is still Muslim to this day in spite of the fact that in World War One of course Turkey was defeated by the Allied powers but the point is that Great Constantine created the Eastern Roman Empire, which survived the Western part by a thousand years. And those were glorious years. I mean, uh, as far as arts and sciences and uh, power, economic and military are concerned. Uh, there was no match for them until, for various reasons, which would lead me too far away uh, to tell you about, it weakened. It, by the way, not one of those reasons had to do with the same problem what the Westerns did, diluting money. This was not it, because the Eastern Roman Empire had a gold coin the Byzant, which was derived from the name of the old city, predating Constantinople, which was Byzantium. And from that name, they derived the word Byzant. And that was the name given to their gold coin. And for more than 800 years, it was the, the trading coin of the civilized world. It was accepted in, in all the countries which were involved in world trade. So they never ever diluted the bizarre, the East Roman Empire. In other words, they learned the lesson from the sister empire, the western, which, fed, which met its uh, fate uh, because they diluted their curse. They did not. However, there were other reasons, as I say, I'm not going to discuss them, and the eastern uh, Roman empire succumbed to the invasion from the east, the uh, the uh, uh, Turks and uh, they occupied uh, 
Constantinople, made it into a Muslim city, the great church of Hagia Sophia, uh, one of the most magnificent buildings in in the, or I would say the most uh, important and imposing building in the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, was turned into a mosque. Uh, they, in the four corners they built minarets, these steep towers where the uh, mullah uh, cried out, Allah Allah. And the Turks went further to the west, ultimately they wanted, they occupied this country, Hungary, or at least uh, the major part of the country, which were plain, plains, the hilly parts, the Turks were not good in uh, fighting on, in mountain territory, and they aimed to occupy Vienna, and that's where they were turned back, and then they started declining. So today, at least this part of Europe is uh, has no not much. There's some traces. If you go to Budapest, you will see Turkish baths and a few other buildings. Uh, but it's nothing like in, for instance, in Bulgaria, where no matter where you go, and actually Muslim people still live there and practice their religion there. That's not the case in Hungary. In spite of the fact that for 150 years this country was under Turkish occupation and the Turks were ruthless, as you probably know. Uh, so there it is, uh, we have the history of the Roman Empire and we should uh, learn our lesson from it. Now I'm going to uh, mention just the caption titles of Ayn Rand's Hymn to Money. The first one is, you must give value for value, in other words, exchange should be fair and should be voluntary and should not be under duress and coercion. Next, wealth is the product of man's capacity to think. Now think about it, this is very deep because uh, you might contradict this, say, no, it has to do with hard labor, you have to exert yourself physically and so on. But the real thing about business, and that's what communists and socialists and welfareists and so on deny, is that business will never succeed by brute force. Business in order to be successful has to use the mind. You have to think and you use your thinking capacity to uh, find the best way. And this thinking cannot be replaced by brute force or hard labor or sweat and blood. It has to be thinking, a very fine thought. Uh, 
Every man is the owner of his mind and his efforts. Now, when I was in elementary school, uh, my one of my schoolmates was the son of a of a doctor, a medical doctor, and this uh, medical doctor, the father of my friend, was very, very strict. And he, if he was not satisfied with uh, the uh, report card of his son, then he used uh, corporal punishment to punish him for the bad marks. So the son was actually uh, intimidated and he just followed blindly the instructions of the father. And I remember how this doctor uh, lectured his son in public, maybe on the street. He came to the school to, uh, at the end of the uh, school day to take his son home. Not every day, but some days he, when he had no other business. And then he would start lecturing his son right in the middle of the street, other people, other children, and passerbys would hear it and said, "Remember, what you learn cannot be stolen from you. Nobody can take it away. Everything else they can. You watch your clothes, your shoes, everything can be take away, taken away." by robbers, by the government, by anybody who is stronger than you. But what you have learned, nobody can touch. It's yours. So I, I remember it so vividly, you know, because I had many occasions in my long life to uh, contemplate the truth of this. Although this was a brutal father, admittedly he was, but the gist of his idea was great, and now it comes back in Ayn Rand in a beautiful literary form. So, uh, this, your thought, what you learn, what is in your mind is yours. Now, by implication, the fruits of your efforts shouldn't be at the disposal of others to take. But in fact it is, because then the rules change a little bit. And in particular the government can take it away from you, the uh, fruits of your efforts. But what you have in your mind is yours. Now here is a, another very subtle and very philosophical title for the next caption, The Scourge of men who attempt to reverse the law of causality. So there are men who try to fight the law of causality, the cause and effect relation in, in the world, which is so clear to everybody, and there's hardly 
any dispute between thinkers and observers that there is a clear-cut cause and a clear-cut effect. But in spite of that universal law, there are people who try to reverse the law of causality. But they are doomed, according to Ayn Rand, and again money plays a role. So this is deep philosophy. Unfortunately, we have no time to go deeper into it. Money will not serve the mind that cannot match it. That's also beautiful. Uh, if you have money, but you have a mind which is no match for it, then the money will not do too much good to you. You've got to have a mind. And the truth of that, if you think more of it, will be obvious. It's not immediately obvious. <coughs> so in other words, money will be a source of blessing or a source of curse to you, depending on your mind. Money is a means of survival. Well, this needs no comment. Money is always an effect with you as the cause. So, through your efforts, if you understand the law of causality and act accordingly, uh, you will have the benefits of money. Otherwise, the, there will be doubts about the actual benefits. Now, that's one of the highlights of him to money. The only substitute for gold money is the muzzle of the gun. Think about it. When coercion is the standard, murderers win over pickpockets. <laughs> That's lovely too, isn't it? Both are ob objectionable, murderers and pickpockets. But of course, if you have to choose, you would always choose the pickpocket uh, ahead of the murderers. However, if you allow the government to rule with coercion, then murderers will be given preference. The pickpockets will f fade away because the pickpockets are subject to murder as well. So there's competition and the murderers will be the winners. Now this may sound as a cliché, but it's very true. Money is the barometer of society's virtue. Sounds like a cliché, but there's a deep uh, uh, truth in it, uh, which might strike you as a li little bit overdrawn. Uh, that money which a lot of people despise, as we started by saying, money is the root of 
all evil. Just the opposite. <coughs> Money is the barometer of society's virtue. Now, you couldn't put it any better than the next one. Paper, money, think of our own. There is no place on earth today where there is any other money than paper money. But paper money is mortgage on wealth that does not exist. Just imagine, you can take out a mortgage on wealth that does not exist. You would say that's impossible. No, sorry, with coercion, the government can do it. And the governments globally are doing it in the world today. Just mortgage on wealth that doesn't exist. So just watch for the day when it will become obvious to everybody that we have a mortgage on wealth that does not exist. What will happen on that day? Well, it's easy to predict. Bloody will flow on the streets. Where wealth is obtained by conquest, there is little to conquer. Another interesting thought. If you make conquest the standard, then you will find that there is little there to conquest because conquer because people will take care of it, that their wealth or their skills and so on will not be available. They hide it. Or they will sabotage the intention of the uh, force which uses coercion. I, I can tell you a personal story. Uh, when I left Hungary in 19... 56 I was dating a girl a blonde girl a very uh, pretty girl uh, that was before I left the country and we didn't know at that time that there will be an uprising a revolution and the borders will open up for a short while and through that we could make the escape to the west. But anyhow, this uh, girlfriend of mine had a stepfather. His, his own father died in the war, World War II, but the stepfather was uh, an engineer who uh, worked in Egypt for many years and came home with some money saved and he invested it into 
real estate mainly in the part of Buddha where we live now. And uh, one of the uh, pieces of real estate he owned was a very pretty uh, spot in the hilly uh, uh, part of the city. Within an orchard there was a house which was never finished uh, except that it was on the roof but inside it was not finished and uh, but you could see that when it will be finished it will be one of the prettiest spots in that area. I even remember the name of the street was called Chalitwoods. It's still there if you go there it's of course uh, lots of apartment buildings and so on. But the uh, thing is this, this engineer or who was probably an architectural engineer, I think that's what he was, he worked in the uh, in the uh, government of that district. The Budapest has districts and each district had a, a local municipal government if you like and he was the chief architect for that district. He had authority to say that this building is not safe, it has to be pulled down or something like that. Now in uh, this case what happened was that the communists took over in the year, in the 1950 and started expropriating um, private property, in particular uh, villas or buildings or even apartments. And uh, very often uh, the motivation was that some functionary of the party wanted to live there. So all he had to do is go to the party secretary and say that I would like to live there and then next day the order went out that it was expropriated and then of course the uh, favored guy could move in and uh, pay no rent and just like that. He was the new owner. Now this, this uh, engineer, architectural engineer, the stepfather of my girlfriend, uh, knew what was coming, that his, uh, his uh, uh, real estate will be ex probably expropriated and the new owner will finish it and, and uh, enjoy, enjoy it. So what did he do? Well, he issued an order that his own building, which he built almost with his own two hands, was unsafe. It has to be pulled down. So sure, the order went out and he dismantled the bricks and put them there strategically, ready for the building to be built and finished when the storm is over. 
Of course, he didn't live long enough. In 1990 or 1989, the communist government disappeared and uh, he could have continued. But that was interesting, that he could just order the demolition of the building he built with his own two hands because there was conquest and the conqueror wanted to take away something but he couldn't because this engineer preempted him, the conqueror. He just pulled down the building. There's no more inducement, incentive to take it over. And then the last one is the country of money. And uh, by this, Ayn Rand means that the country of money, according to her, is the United States. So the first time in history people were uh, or had relative freedom to enjoy the fruits of their own mind and labor. First time in history. Because all the other regimes, the old uh, regimes in Europe and uh, dictatorial regimes in other parts of uh, South, uh, South America and elsewhere in the world, were all set upon uh, taking away. So they allowed you as much freedom to produce and they wanted to take the harvest. And uh, this is like the beekeeper. Okay? The beekeeper gives enough honey back to the bees to survive the winter, but just enough to survive. No reserves, no extra uh, stores. The beekeeper takes it away from the bees. So that's the idea of the old regimes. But sure, give, give them a little and let them think that they are in control, they will have the benefits, old age or saving money for uh, giving good education to their children and so on. But that's only in the imagination because the beekeeper is ready to pounce upon the honey, take it away, just let them produce let them produce and when they have then steps in and the idea is that you see the bees cannot learn they don't have uh, the power of grasping what's going on but the difference in the case of humans is that they know and they see what is happening that they are exploited and so on and uh, the best minds among the humans realize that freedom is the thing to give maximum benefit to all society. 
and they are opposed by a group of people, these are the welfareists, socialists of different stripe and color, who say, no, 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 uh, let them produce and then we just take the product and share it equally. That's the best way. They don't think how this will affect the efficiency of production. That the total amount of product will not be the same under coercion as it would be under freedom. And just like the man cannot take it with him to the grave, the same way if individual individuals prosper, that's for the benefit of society because no matter what they do, when they die, it will remain and it will somehow benefit society. And that is why freedom is the best condition for society. Now the last one is this, and that's just beautiful. No, I, I don't think anybody could put it better. It's this title of the caption uh, tells you what the choice is. Blood, whips and guns, or gold. You see? the contrast between coercion and freedom and the instruments, how you can reach it. Blood, whips and guns, instruments of coercion, gold, instrument of freedom. Well, that's the first hour. We'll have a coffee break now and in 30 minutes, approximately at uh, 11, or soon after, we'll have a discussion period, roughly half an hour, and then break again, but you are free to do what you will. And one o'clock, the lunch. Lunch is one o'clock. So that will be the pattern throughout the week, and uh, you will have a chance to ask questions or make comments. Uh, and I would certainly encourage you. And if you, if anybody would like to have copies of this, then uh, please help yourself and sign your name. And as I say, feel free to return it tomorrow if you don't want to buy it. No coercion here. <laughs> but we have to make a charge because we have uh, a cost to produce these. This is. A uh, little primitive, I admit, but still it's something in your hand. And I will certainly encourage you to read the hymn to money. It's a beautiful piece of literature and very true and very timely. Okay, thank you.